Health Commission meeting of Tuesday, May 2nd, 2023. Secretary Morowitz, would you please call the roll? Sure. Commissioner Christian. Present. Commissioner Guillermo. Present. Commissioner Chung. Present. Commissioner Bernal. Present. Commissioner Chow. Present. Commissioner Gerardo. Present. And Commissioner Green. Present. Thank you. And at today's meeting is my privilege to offer the Rambaytush Ohlone land acknowledgement. The San Francisco Health Commission acknowledges that we are on the unceded ancestral homeland of the Ramaytush Ohlone, who are the original inhabitants of the San Francisco Peninsula. As the indigenous stewards of this land, and in accordance with their traditions, the Ramaytush Ohlone have never ceded, lost, nor forgotten their responsibilities as the caretakers of this place, as well as for all peoples who reside in their traditional territory. As guests, we recognize that we benefit from living and working on their traditional homeland. We wish to pay our respects by acknowledging the ancestors, elders, and relatives of the Ramaytush Ohlone community and by affirming their sovereign rights as First Peoples. All right, our first item is a discussion item, uh, Laguna Honda Hospital and Rehabilitation Center closure plan and CMS recertification update. Would like to welcome Mr. Roland Pickens to the podium. And Mr. Pickens, the microphone works like a regular microphone, so you don't have to oh. just you know speak into it, but you don't have to get that close. Okay, great, great, thank you. Thank you, President Bernal. Good, good uh, afternoon. Uh, commissioners, it's a pleasure to be we're here with you today to provide this update on the status of Laguna Honda Hospital uh, in our recertification uh, efforts. Uh, I'm joined by uh, senior leaders of the hospital who are uh, attending remotely, and they are here to support me in the event that there may be questions that I may not be able to answer on my own. They were there to help back me up. So we'll go ahead and start. Next slide. As, as we uh, have shared before, uh, we all remember back in April of 2022, a little over a year ago, uh, the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services terminated Laguna Honda's participation uh, in the Medicare provider uh, program. Uh, since then, we have and continue to work hard to meet all regulatory requirements and make rapid improvements to prepare for recertification. Next slide. As we've discussed here previously, uh, on November 10th of last year, uh, the city and county signed a settlement agreement uh, with of CMS and the California Department of Public Health. Under the terms of that agreement, CMS agreed to continue paying for care at Laguna Honda uh, at least through November 13th of this year, 2023, uh, and also agreed to pause both involuntary discharges to the community and involuntary transfers to skilled nursing facilities. And I emphasize involuntary because it's important to uh, note and remember that uh, under the terms of this settlement agreement, residents still have the right to initiate themselves if they wanted to either be discharged to the community or to be transferred to another SNF. And in fact, there have been at least 16 a resident initiated discharges that have occurred over the last year. It's also important to note that um, 
while that pause was uh, extended uh, in early May of this year uh, on both the discharges and the transfers, um, a little over a week ago, we were directed by CMS that while the pause and transfers to other skilled nursing facilities will remain, at least through May 19th, they directed us to begin the process of doing community-based discharges for Laguna Honda residents who no longer meet skilled nursing facility levels of care as defined by uh, CMS in the Medicaid program. That represents approximately 40 of the current 530 residents at Laguna Honda. Um, you, you'll um, appreciate that uh, this represents individuals who, when they first came to Laguna Honda, actually did meet the skilled nursing uh, levels of care requirements when they were first admitted. Uh, but due to the great care that they received at Laguna at some point in time, uh, they uh, recovered uh, and then no longer needed assistance with what's known as uh, ADLs or activities of daily living. So for example, help with feeding, uh, bathing, uh, toileting, uh, personal grooming. So as a consequence, those individuals then fall outside of the parameters for which CMS will pay for care and they've instructed us to proceed with uh, identifying uh, community-based placements for those 40 individuals and our teams are actively working on that. Next slide. So that settlement agreement that was reached in November of last year uh, had many, many requirements, uh, mostly on the part of the city, uh, DPH, and Laguna Honda. Uh, one of the key components of that settlement agreement was a requirement that a um, CMS-approved quality improvement expert conduct a root cause analysis uh, on the operations of Laguna Honda over the past uh, two and a half years looking at the results of previous surveys and findings in order to identify were there key themes or trends that may have led to the circumstances which led to the decertification. That quality improvement expert is a firm called Health Services Advisory Group uh, as you know, Health Services Advisory Group has actually been on board at Laguna uh, well before the settlement agreement. They actually <coughs> came to Laguna in May of last year. So they've been with us for a year already working with us to improve our, our processes and our regulatory compliance. So to date, um, um, after undergoing that root cause analysis and developing an action plan that initially had of 330 milestones that uh, had that have to be met and completed by May 19th of this year. Uh, there are, there's also another component to that settlement agreement, which is 90-day monitoring surveys. So every 90 days since November of, of last year, uh, we've been uh, in a survey window process. We've already undergone two of those 90-day monitoring surveys. The first occurred at the end of November and early December of last year. And the second survey uh, just concluded uh, in uh, March of this year. During that survey process, um, um, teams from both CMS and California Department of Public Health have come in and reviewed our operations. 
uh, we note that there was significant improvement in the second survey compared to the first survey. Uh, and uh, we anticipate uh, that the next, the third monitoring survey will occur between a window starting the end of this month, May, through sometime in June. We're expecting that third survey. Next slide. So that action plan that, that came out of the root cause analysis uh, has served as our, our guiding light and our path towards recertification uh, since January of this, this year. It truly serves as our blueprint for how we will accomplish CMS recertification. Remember, this action plan was um, developed with the CMS quality improvement expert along with our leadership team. Uh, and represents, from their opinion, uh, all of those important um, improvements and uh, corrective actions that uh, need to be made in order for Laguna to be ready to be successful uh, with its CMS recertification survey uh, that will occur uh, later this year. One of the components of that settlement agreement is that every month the CMS quality improvement expert submits a report to CMS on the 10th of the month um, that shows our progress towards meeting the action plan and our overall improvement uh, towards being ready for recertification. As we've reported previously, we have been 100% successful every month, having um, completed all required milestones in January. There were 126 in February, there were 133. In March, there were, nine, there were 77, and uh, for the month of April and early May, there are approximately 120, and we are on track for, again, successfully completing all of those. So from our perspective, uh, we feel we are very much complying with the terms of that settlement agreement uh, and are, are really setting the stage to uh, um, definitively uh, prove to CMS that we are making um, improvements towards our path towards recertification. Uh, as I mentioned, that initial um, um, action plan had 330 milestones. Uh, those are on track to be completed by May 13th, which is the date listed. Uh, and it's also important to remember that those were from the original root cause analysis and, and the um, action, uh, action plan. With those two additional 90-day monitoring surveys, there have been subsequent follow-up root cause analyses on those individual findings, and there have been new milestones that have been developed. So while we originally started with 330 milestones, at the end of this last survey that ended in March, we're now up to a total of 500 milestones. So two weeks from now, we will have completed the 330. Um, but there are approximately another couple of hundred that will be completed after the 13th date in order that the QIE has time to validate that we have made the improvements uh, and that those improvements uh, are, are, long, are going to be long lasting and we're not just window dressing but have been baked into the um, uh, organizational processes. In terms of some of the timing for all of these various moving parts, the action plans and the milestones. Uh, once we are successful uh, in completing that third monitoring survey, again, which we think will be sometime between the end of this month, May, and June, 
and then there will be another uh, mini root cause analysis on whatever findings there might be. Knock on wood, it would be great if there were zero findings, but in, in, in an institution as large as Laguna Honda, that's very unlikely. Uh, so whatever, hopefully there will be very few findings, but whatever those are, the uh, quality improvement expert is then required to work with our leadership team to develop an action plan and potentially new milestones, have those implemented um, over a period of time, probably two to four weeks. And then probably uh, based upon that time frame, July, August, uh, we feel we will be in a better position uh, to have the assurance that we really have fixed those items from all of the monitoring surveys and the root cause analysis, and then be prepared to uh, submit and apply for our recertification survey. Next slide. So that settlement agreement, again, had many, many requirements that were put upon the city and, and DPH and Laguna. One of them was the production of a closure plan. Uh, one would say, well, why would you do a closure plan when you, know, you fully expect to have continued operations? And the answer to that is it was, it is, it was and remains to be a requirement for the continued funding from CMS. In order for uh, CMS to continue funding uh, while we are not certified, they required the production of this closure plan. The original closure plan was uh, approved last summer, um, and, of, and, it, and you will recall it was not the closure plan that we wanted, uh, but it was the one that CMS was willing to approve that had an initial four month for us to do transfers. We all know what happened when that was implemented. That led to the pause and the settlement back in November. Um, in terms of the closure plan, um, because of the settlement agreement, it had to be uh, updated to reflect uh, the new requirements under the settlement agreement. Uh, that updated closure plan uh, was recently um, approved um, about a month ago. Uh, and as we said before, it's our desire that we never have to implement that closure plan because that would require us to resume transfers of residents. And we feel that we have demonstrated to CMS and hopefully others that we truly are making uh, long-lasting improvements at Laguna. We are meeting every uh, metric that uh, they have asked us to meet in terms of these monthly milestones. Uh, and we are anticipating a successful third monitoring survey. So again, we think we've made the case for why this closure plan should never be implemented. Um, but uh, at the same time, we fulfilled our requirement to have the closure plan to ensure our ongoing funding. Uh, next slide. So throughout this process, we always uh, want to and we always do keep residents at the center of all that we do. And part of that resident-centered care is making sure we uh, we respect and protect uh, our residents' rights. And one of those rights uh, is the right to appeal. It's, it's laid as statutory um, uh, requirements in the state of California uh, Medicaid operations manual and gives our residents 
um, um, quite a big role in terms of how their care is delivered in terms of where it's delivered. Um, obviously, as I said, we're making sure we are doing everything we can not to have to implement the closure plan. But, uh, and in fact, we have in our uh, ongoing communications with CMS and also with HHS, uh, we have um, uh, requested that they continue the pause that is now set to expire on May 19th for transfers to other facilities. Uh, and uh, we are awaiting their response to our request that they continue that pause. Um, Dr. Colfax and I uh, have regular discussions with CMS and HHS. Uh, they have indicated they are considering our request. Uh, we had discussion that uh, when they extended the pause the last time, uh, we were only given 24 hours notice. And obviously that created a lot of strain, particularly for our residents, but their families, other health systems in the city who depend upon Laguna Honda. And so uh, they have indicated that uh, they are, are appreciative of what happened the last time and that they are confident they will be able to give us a response well in advance of the May 19th date. However, they didn't give us a particular date, but they just said it would, would be much sooner than the previous notification. And I have to say, based upon um, um, the discussions that Dr. Kovacs and I have been a part with the senior leadership at both CMS and HHS, uh, it is, I think, a much better relationship than it was six months ago, and they seem to be much more collaborative and responsive to our needs. So I'm very hopeful uh, that they will be true to their words and uh, give us some relief on that pause sooner rather than later. Next slide. So that concludes my brief uh, overview, uh, and I'm sure you have questions and comments, and I will do my best to try and address them at the appropriate time. Thank you, Mr. Pickens, to you and your team for this excellent presentation. Uh, Secretary Morowitz, will you let us know if there's any public comments along with any necessary instructions? Sure. Um, there are several people already with their raised hands. I want to first clarify that the number to call today for public comment is 415-655-0001. Again, 415-655-0001. The access, access code is 2597-844-2164-POUND. Uh, All right, I've got a script to read about public comment. Um, for each agenda item, members of the public will have an opportunity to make comment for up to three minutes. The public comment process is designed to invite input and feedback from individuals in the community. However, the process does not allow questions to be answered in the meeting or for members of the public to engage in back and forth conversation with the commissioners. The commissioners do consider comments from members of the public when discussing an item and making requests to the DPH. Please note that each individual is allowed one opportunity to speak per agenda item. Individuals may not return more than once to read statements from other individuals unable to attend the meeting. Written public comment may be sent to the health commission at the following email address, health.commission.dph at sfdph.org. If you wish to spell your name for the minutes, you may do so during your verbal comments without taking your allotted time. Please note that city policies along with federal, state, and local law prohibit discriminatory or harassing conduct against city employees and others during public meetings and will not be tolerated. We will first take public comment from individuals attending the meeting in person. We will then take remote public comment from individuals who have received an accommodation for a disability. For the meeting today, I've given accommodation to three people. So please note, um, the first folks that we will call will be those three people. Um, others, please do not raise your hand until your category is called. 
I've given each of these individuals a code to speak when they begin their comments to prevent others from speaking during this time. Finally, we will hear remote public comment from all other individuals. There will be a, a time limit of 20 minutes on the total amount of remote public comment that can be heard on each item from individuals who have not heard an accommodation for disability. Because of the new remote public comment procedures recommended by the Office of the City Administrator and City Attorney's Office, please do not raise your hand to make remote public comment on an item until your category is called. Okay, um, so, um, Seuss, please unmute the first person. I'm gonna, I have a timer in my hand. Everybody gets three minutes, and when the buzzer goes off, please know your time is up. Okay, caller, you're unmuted. Please let us know you're there. Thank you. Uh, this is Michael Lyon of the uh, San Francisco Great Panthers. Um, this uh, this uh, closure plan is something that you should be ashamed of, uh, of being a part of. Let me read a little bit of it. This is called the intent. The intent of this revised closure plan is to ensure the safe, orderly, and clinically appropriate transfer or discharge of each patient with the minimum amount of stress for patients, families, guardians, and legal representatives. All Medicare and Medicaid beneficiary patients will be discharged or transferred to the most most appropriate setting possible in terms of quality services and location available and determined and determined to be appropriate for each resident um, about a, a uh, doing this in an expedition and as safe a manner as possible people should be ashamed of this of, of having signed on to this um i looked to see what was talked about at the um before the uh, deadly transfers uh took place and they're really uh, they really basically the same thing was said um in uh, the earlier how uh, plan it said resident teams completing the patient place uh, placement associates for the following current level of care, risks for transfer trauma, discharge op options. It's the same stuff. It's, this is an insult to the, um, to the 12 people who died um, uh, on, the first, on the first go around. And I don't see anything in this that indicates that uh, another one would be any different. There's no... <clears throat> There's still no uh, places in San Francisco that are going to be able to take them. The, the, we have yet to have any kind of proof that the legal discharge uh, notices that are going to be given have any uh, any kind of uh, backing. And if it if push comes to shove, residents will rebel. They will not go. Thank you. Thank you. Um, so uh, there are more hands up than I've given accommodation to. So I want to repeat that the only folks who should have hands up for this part of the public comment should be the, there's two more folks who've received accommodation for me. Seuss, please um, uh, unmute caller five. Yeah, Mark, AKA Patrick, can you hear me? Yes, sir, please begin. Today is May 2nd, the pause on discharge and 17 days from now on May 19th, and presumably you may begin discharging people as early as May 20th. Is that what you're planning on doing? 
As for Mr. Pickens' quote, hope to apply for recertification sometime soon, end quote, the third 90 days monitoring survey is scheduled for late May or the middle of June. I recall Laguna Hunter may need to pass two consecutive standard health surveys, not 90 day monitoring surveys, before it can gain recertification. Those two quote unquote clean surveys have to happen with 12 or fewer deficiencies rated less than the severity and scope of Ears and Edward, a pattern of no actual harm or lower, even before CMS will accept a recertification application. But Pickens had reported Laguna Hunter had observed 23 deficiencies during the second monitoring survey, double the 12 or fewer deficiencies. At least two of the 23 were level F, widespread, level two, no harm deficiencies. This suggests Laguna Hunter may not even be eligible to submit an application for recertification until sometime well after the end of September at the earliest. It also suggests admissions to Laguna Hunter will likely not resume any time before September and may not even resume by the end of the calendar year, at which point the current census will more than likely shrink from 530 to 450 or fewer residents. Between now and then, there will be lots more out-of-county patient dumping. You need to clean up this process and move it along and get that pause extended rapidly so the patients have plenty of forewarning and you need to speed this process up to resume admissions. If you only have 450 patients or even 530, why do you need to have the same number of staff? Thank you. All right, thank you. Uh, okay, and please unmute caller seven. Hi, caller, please is, there. Yeah, this is Dr. Palmer, WW. Um, is CMS, I mean, there is no place for people to go. And, um, and there is no mechanism of, there was no way of um, actually reviewing what happened to people after transfer last time. And in the closure plan, this time there is no mechanism for keeping track of people once they were transferred uh, to see what harm has been done. And so um, th this is resuming um, evictions uh, by whatever euphemism you wanna call, call them is um, extremely dangerous. And um, uh, it's gonna make CMS look like a thug and it's going to um, lead to um, even more endless lawsuits against the city than are now uh, being addressed uh, as, as in the closed section. So 
I don't see how um, evictions and transfers can be resumed um, without severe consequences, not only to the patients, but to the government agencies that are forcing them. Um, and I hope CMS is aware of that. I also uh, would like to hear more about the, the 120 bed cuts and if CMS is showing any insight into the danger of uh, lowering beds even more given the severe shortage of beds. Thank you. Great, thank you. And that ends the um, category of those who've received accommodation. We can move on to all others who would like to make remote public comment. Please press star three to raise your hands. Um, so, uh, Seuss, please um, unmute um, as you see fit. Yes, hi, this is Joseph Urban. Um, I appreciate the intent of the administration to pressure CMS to continue to postpone the transfer and relocation program. Yet, nonetheless, I'm going to argue now that the proposed new plan is inadequate and deadly. Uh, the following is an edited section of my recent essay called A Story of Death and Regulation, Restarting the Laguna Honda Discharges. 146 people have already read this essay. The current transfer and relocation program plan appears to be a redo of last summer's process with a moderate amount of additional preliminary assessment of the patient's risk of transfer trauma. While the plan does implement procedures for assessing patients beforehand, there is no prescribed assessment post-transfer, which is troubling. What is even more concerning is the lack of a post-mortem on the causes of the prior deaths due to transfer trauma. The post-mortem is the standard procedure in a project management and would have had been an obvious step to execute before proposing an improved process. To date, the public has not seen the results of any postmortem on the 12 deadly incidents of last summer. We are left to assume that there has never been a postmortem. Now, despite the lack of a systematic assessment of the causes of these transfer trauma incidents, transfers are set to resume. This is worrying as without this analysis, there could be no means to ensure that the proposed procedures will address the problems that led to these deadly failures. While pre-assessment of patient risk is a part of a comprehensive plan, post-transfer assessment is even more critical to ensuring patient survival. By definition, patients are experiencing their transfer trauma at the new facility. This program was not even defined, has not even defined the metrics for measuring patient status post-transfer, which is a significant omission. If a patient were on a deadly trend in the new facility, there are no prescriptive mitigation procedures in place to take immediate action. Actions are left to the discretion of the care providers in the receiving facility. The, the plan fails to provide any continual risk assessment and mitigation, which is unacceptable. Patients have a right to receive care that is safe and appropriate for their needs. The transfer and relocation program must be re-examined to ensure that it prioritizes patient safety and well-being. Until then, there cannot be a safe program for transfer and relocation of patients from Laguna Honda Hospital. Restarting the transfer and relocation program in its current state is a dangerous and irresponsible action by the Laguna Honda Administration and the San Francisco Department of Public Health. Significant analysis, process design, and testing of a new transfer and relocation procedure must be done before any transfer and relocation program proceeds. That effort would take many months. Otherwise, we can now assume that the measured rate of transfer trauma resulting in death will soon send 100 residents at Laguna Honda to their deaths. Thank you. Thank you. Zeus, please uh, unmute the next caller. 
Hello, commissioners. Uh, my name is Norm Dagelman, and I am a member of the Great Panthers. How will the rights of residents addicted to other nursing homes to have a say in what is best for them to be on? We are hearing that people who need a nursing home bed have to go to the Central Valley in Southern California or farther to low quality nursing homes. Given the death rate from previous discharges, the public has a right to detailed information on how any discharge will be accomplished. It does not seem possible in current circumstances to truly honor the safety preferences and care needs of evicted nursing home residents. To prevent death and violation of resident rights is CM, CMS CDPH admitting to the need for an extension of the May 19th date for evictions. No evictions, no closure, and no bed cuts. Thank you for listening. Thank you, that was the last caller. Thank you, Secretary Morowitz, and thank you to all of the callers for calling to express your comments. Um, we will now move on to Commissioner questions and comments. And I actually do have a few, uh, Mr. Pickens. And uh, you know, we've we've heard some sort of consistent concerns from the public, and these are concerns that are shared by the commission as well. And we do acknowledge that at this point, really, the authority and the decision-making power rests with the Center for Medicare and Medicaid Services, as well as the California Department of Public Health. So understanding that you know, they are the ones who are best equipped to answer some of these questions. But just a couple things that have come up. For example, uh, my understanding is that the closure plan is something that was required by CMS per regulations in order to be in order to be in the recertification process and if a closure plan was not submitted we would not be eligible for recertification at Laguna Honda is that correct uh, that is correct uh, it's my understanding it's part of the code of federal regulations that when an institution becomes decertified a closure plan is a federal requirement okay. and, so, and therefore so in order to be eligible to be recertified you must uh, uh, be in compliance with all uh, applicable uh, federal uh, requirements and one of those would then be uh, that we have an approved closure plan in, uh, on file. So it's a plan but it does not signal an intent to close because our intent very clearly is recertification. Absolutely and as I say every opportunity I get we hope this is a plan that will live on the shelf somewhere and never have to be pulled out mm -hmm. but uh, um, again, it was a requirement, uh, number one, for our ability to sit for recertification, and as importantly, it, it was and remains a requirement for that ongoing funding, which helps us co to continue to provide the care for the residents that we still have. So had we not submitted the closure plan, we would not currently be receiving funding from CMS for the care that we are currently off giving to our residents? Absolutely. Okay. CMS made that very clear, and it's clear in, in their statutes. Okay. Um, the second question is, you know, and we're all very concerned about the looming, uh, you know, deadline for for reinitiating transfers of residents. I want to thank you and your team and the leadership at SFDPH for working very closely, I think, in a very productive way with CMS and CDPH. And I understand that um, a request to continue the pause on transfers has been submitted. 
to CMS and is currently being considered. Um, what we're, we're on May 2nd right now. I know that the, the, uh, the transfers could possibly resume on May 19th. You know, I think that I speak for the entire commission that it's our great hope that we would receive notice of a continued pause sooner rather than later to prevent the kind of you know, anxiety and really anguish that our residents and their families and certainly our staff at Laguna Honda experienced in not knowing what was going to happen. So I think that we all stand with, with the leadership of Laguna Honda and the department hoping that we receive a response uh, very soon. Thank you, Commissioner. And uh, as I said, Dr. Colfax and I, at every opportunity, uh, make that same uh, request and argument with CMS that uh, it's in everyone's best interest, most importantly, our residents' best interest, but it uh, also uh, is in the best interest of the community uh, and everyone who supports Laguna to know that uh, residents will not be uh, transferred uh, and that they'll continue to be at Laguna, which is where they want to be, because remember, they've all had the opportunity to voluntarily request to be transferred elsewhere, uh, and there haven't been none. That, that's an important point, Mr. Pickens. Thank you. And finally, on the question of 120 beds, knowing that now that we're being recertified, it is under the new regulations which do not allow triplet rooms. Um, is my understanding correct that since we are not currently, since Laguna Honda is not currently a CMS certified facility, that the sequence of events would be to achieve recertification so that we are a certified facility that is overseen by CMS and that would be the time at which uh, we would make a request for a waiver to continue utilizing those 120 beds so it wouldn't further exacerbate really the shortage of beds that we have here in San Francisco and the Bay Area and you know, e e even the state. Uh, is, that, is that correct? Is that, is that the sequence of events that, that we, we need to achieve recertification at which point that's when we should be requesting and that's, that's our intent fully once we achieve recertification at Laguna Honda to request that waiver to continue utilizing those 120 beds. Your understanding is absolutely correct. Uh, it's important to note that um, CMS has made it very clear in both the um, settlement agreement and all of their interactions with us um, since then is that recertification should continue to be our number one priority, and it is. Recertification means bringing every aspect of Laguna operations into regulatory compliance so that our residents can be assured they are in a, a safe and um, well-run facility. Uh, in addition to uh, that regulatory uh, re requirement uh, compliance, uh, in terms of those 120 beds, uh, in order to um, uh, be uh, approved for certification, you have to be deemed in compliance with the rules that are in effect at that time. And in order to make ourselves eligible when we submit our application, we have to comply with that rule that eliminates those 120 20 beds. As I said before, we have maintained all of our options to have those beds uh, added back to our uh, license. They're still on our license, but added back to of the full complement of beds once we become uh, recertified. In our ongoing discussions with CMS, they have made it very clear that because of 
our need to get back into compliance through recertification, that a request for a waiver at this point would not be uh, received well. Uh, and when, when someone tells me that, that's, that, that tells me they're telling me it would not be approved at this time and that they want us to focus our efforts on uh, recertification. Those 120 beds are extremely important. We've heard the reports here at the Health Commission about the uh, lack and dearth of insufficient skilled nursing facility beds in San Francisco. So uh, we are all committed to getting those beds back uh, in full operation at Laguna. Uh, while we have made sure we comply with the no more than two residents per room at this point, uh, we, uh, at, we made sure that we did it in a way that once we are recertified and once we do submit for that waiver that would allow those 120 beds to come back, we can simply um, put those beds back into operation as quickly as possible. Uh, so that then we can um, go back to our full complement of 780 beds uh, as we are licensed for by the state of California. Right. Thank you, Mr. Pickens, for clarifying those very important points. Commissioners, other questions or comments? Commissioner Guillermo. Thank you, and thank you, President Bernal, for asking some of the questions that I had uh, in mind so that uh, uh, I can focus on uh, just one additional question. Uh, I, we have... First of all, thank you for your report, uh, Mr. Pickens. And uh, again, even though uh, uh, we hear some of the same information each time, it really does bear repeating. Uh, and so I appreciate that you're uh, able to do that. And um, uh, But in any case, the, the question I have is around the third 90-day survey. Um, the second survey did not last 90 days, uh, even though we haven't received the full uh, report back on that. Um, so I, I'm just, just in terms of the timeline, it's quite possible, and if we're anticipating a better uh, 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 positioning uh, of Laguna Honda uh, post-May uh, for that third survey, we may not have to uh, uh, look to, the, and if it, assuming things turn out well, it may be sooner than the fall that we might be ready to apply for the recertification. Is that correct? Yes, based upon what we know now, that that uh, I think is is the timeline that we would apply before the fall. Um, definitely, uh, sometime after this third monitoring survey, it's required action plan, it's required milestones. So I think that puts us in the window of July August um, uh, 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 sometime. And I also want to take this opportunity to level set. So first monitoring survey was what they call a full comprehensive survey. This is where CMS and CDPH came in and did basically a mock recertification survey. So they looked at everything, every, every CMS requirement. And so we had several findings and tags. The second monitoring survey was not a full monitoring survey. It's what's called an abbreviated survey. So. Uh, it did not look at each and every CMS uh, um, um, standard. And, and, and accordingly, we had fewer findings in that second abbreviated survey. It's, it's our understanding when they come back for the third monitoring survey, it will revert back to a full comprehensive survey. So uh, again, we expect it, number one, it's, it's gonna be better than the first one. Uh, there may be 
more findings in the second one because the second was just an abbreviated where they only looked at particular areas. This third one will again be kind of like a mock full survey. So I want to level set that uh, again, knock on wood, we'd like to have zero deficiencies, but the chances of that are not um, good. But I want you to have that understanding so that when we get those results, you may say, well, you had just as many on the third survey as you did on the second, but they were two complete, they're not apples and oranges. One is everything, the other is just a small subset. And can you, um, for um, uh, just for my own uh, memory, the the amount of time it took to get the final report back on the first 90-day survey uh, versus the second uh, uh, truncated survey? Gosh, I tell you, there have been so many dates. I, I can say it took it took several weeks, if not more than almost a couple of months, to get. Uh, the findings from that from that first survey, uh, and so um, the second survey came back a little quicker, and so we're hoping that the third time will be the charm, that it that that will come back. Typically, when there's a survey, one um, expects to receive what they call the 2567, the statement of deficiencies, within 10 days. Well, that didn't happen with the first survey. 10 days turned into a couple of months. Uh, the second survey, uh, we got it back a little bit sooner, uh, and and rem and in that second survey, we got it back piecemeal. We've had two 2567s, one for fire life safety, uh, the other for um, uh, um, emergency management. Uh, they still owe us the final um, 2567 for that extended survey that they. Uh, um, we went into at the end of the second survey. So uh, we're in the window to get that within the 10-day time frame, I think today. So hopefully we'll get it this week or if not next week. That will go to the QIE. They will do a root cause analysis on that, work with us to do milestones, uh, and then that will complete then the second monitoring survey. And then the process will repeat all over again for the third survey. Thank you. Uh, Commissioner Chow. Uh, yes, thank you uh, very much for uh, the uh, uh, report today and, and also for the responses uh, that uh, uh, you had to uh, our commission president, which are uh, many of the questions that all of us have had and have also been receiving from the public. I, I'm trying then to understand uh, that uh, our obligation by, is it uh, uh, for, for the completion, is it completion of the action plan or completion of all, the, all, all of the corrections for the action plan? What, what, what is it that that really is that we have to do uh, that allows us to continue our funding through November under our uh, um, uh, agreement settlement with the uh, CMS so that I, I think uh, you've clarified what some of these surveys are and they've found certain milestones that we were required to uh, present a solution to that the QI has assisted our staff to do and you're on track to complete all of those uh, at least the first block right that you said in your presentation so now what has to happen to that first block by this point or 
if once we've completed it, does that allow us to move forward even on the second block and still have funding? Uh, so the answer to that question uh, is yes. In the settlement agreement, uh, it, it, it uses the term that um, the terms of the settlement agreement for ongoing funding and the pauses are contingent upon Laguna Honda being able to show progress towards improvement and towards recertification. It doesn't say, it doesn't define what that progress is. So that's why those reports every month from the QIE are important, because that is the, really the basis that CMS has to determine, is Laguna Honda making sufficient progress to meet the terms of the settlement agreement? Uh, one can say that those milestones are a good definitive measure of progress. And so we feel confident that we have shown that by meeting all those milestones. Again, by May 13th, we will have met the original 333 milestones, 100% successful. And um, then we will focus on those subsequent milestones uh, that will need to be completed uh, um, from May 13th through whatever process uh, leading up to when we submit for recertification. Good, thank you. L let me just focus on the uh, new closure plan. Uh, the old closure plan required that we uh, discharge everybody with a certain deadline, which I, I, I know that uh, the department had fought and we were unable to obtain a reprieve from the fact that they said in four months everybody had to be uh, moved, which of course uh, certainly uh, not only was pressure, but uh, uh, perhaps uh, you know, uh, not very realistic. Does the new closure plan continue to have that type of deadline or is it more that uh, you make your efforts and we recognize the efforts? Because you've outlined for us a number of appeal processes, right, which uh, a resident really could take. And I think you've indicated also that this is sort of state generated too and the state in fact is the appeal that a resident can make if the resident disagreed with uh, either the transfer or even the place you're transferring to. So could you help uh, uh, me understand that uh, a, a little better as to uh, is there a deadline that everybody has to be, you know, um, moved in spite of the fact that we're trying to apply for recertification? And then well, what does that appeal process really look like? Uh, well, I guess you could even begin with how long does it take to evaluate a particular uh, patient again? And then what is her appeal process? Okay, lots of questions. So let me, I hope I can get them all. So in terms of what does it take to evaluate? So per the terms of the closure plan, uh, each resident at Laguna has to be reassessed as to their level of care and needs every 90 days. So that has happened ever since the closure, the original closure plan was approved last summer. So every 90 days, our interdisciplinary teams of physicians, nurses, therapists, technicians review each resident to determine, number one, do they still meet skilled nursing uh, level of care, and then what are their special needs? So that, that is the, the, the process. In terms of um, your question about does the plan have um, uh, uh, requirements in terms of a date by which uh, 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 transfers or discharges would have to be met. No, it does not. Um, it, uh, it does uh, require that we make our every and best effort 
to identify um, uh, um, um, if we were to, again, implement it. Our goal is to not have to implement this, but if we did, uh, it does prescribe uh, the steps that we must go through. The state operations manual uh, dictates what's required in order to go through the discharge process. Our plan takes uh, the, the essential elements of the state operations manual and then customizes it to the Laguna population and then puts in additional steps that we feel are necessary, including the transfer, trauma transfer uh, assessment uh, it also um, uh, then preserves the rights, as you said, of our residents to uh, file an appeal. You are correct that the appeal process is not something that we adjudicate. The state has a process for adjudicating that through the State Department of Health Care Services. Uh, and uh, with the changes in Cal-AIM that took place in January of this year, that responsibility now has shifted from DHCS to pay State Department of, Department of Healthcare Services to the individual uh, Medicaid health plans. So for example, San Francisco Health Plan or Anthem Blue Cross in San Francisco, in the event that we were to move forward, they would be actively involved uh, in trying to help find uh, locations uh, and to, um, to handle that uh, re referral process and uh, also the uh, appeals process. Um, uh, I, th I think that uh, with uh, the questions that my uh, colleagues have asked that uh, most of my other questions have been answered. Thank you very much. Vice President Green. Yes, well, first of all, thank you for the excellent presentation and for the really wonderful clarifications of the questions that I know the commissioners and the public have had concerns about. And it's also really heartening to hear that your relationship with CMS is becoming increasingly collaborative. That, that's really terrific. The, the question I had as we look at Survey 3 is when we first started all this, I think the corrective action plans and the milestones were kind of brand new and there were a lot of kind of heavy lift um, types of corrections needed. But now that we're well on our way to um, uh, meeting all the stipulations, should new milestones uh, arise, can you give us a sense for whether you will simply be um, building on or, or refining some of the plans you already have versus do you think there could possibly be any unidentified issues that we'd be starting from scratch? I mean, do you feel like it's a matter of, of tweaking things or could there be other things when you say this, this more um, broadly based survey that could, could come up? So great question and I would, uh, uh, say that um, the second monitoring survey and the action plan and the milestones that came out of that truly, truly reflect this concept of building upon the previous work from the root cause analysis and the milestones. Because in fact, uh, even for those tags and findings uh, from the state on the 2567, the QIE uh, went back and made sure that if there were any findings that had already been addressed by a previous milestone, that that milestone was cited. Because what we found is when they came in for the second monitoring survey, we knew about some of those issues that they identified and tagged, but there had not been sufficient time to put all of those improvements in place and to have them stick. And so obviously they found the deficiency, but we had already developed milestones to fix it. 
And so, so the thought is when they come for the third, third monitoring survey, there will then have been sufficient time to get some of these things that had not been completed by the second survey uh, done and in process so that um, um, we will again have fewer findings and then fewer subsequent milestones. But we've also always taken the position that these milestones have to be reinforcing and building. We don't want to do one-offs. This has to be a system for constant, continuous improvement. And in fact, uh, as I shared with Dr. Colfax, even once we finish the third monitoring survey, all of the work on these now 500 milestones, which um, it doesn't go away. These are now going to be uh, transitioned into the monthly QAPI reporting at Laguna. So those, those initiatives will still be followed and monitored to make sure we sustain the improvements and the gains and that we don't take our eye off the prize. Thank you. I know we've been concerned about sustainability and that's really heartening to hear. The last question I had is you talked a little earlier about some of the frustrations of not getting feedback in a timely manner from governmental organizations, but have you been um, satisfied and confident with the RCAs? In other words, when QIE, your QIE group has to respond, have, has their turnaround been fast and the RCA has been quickly developed and then the, you know, the corrective action plans as well? I mean, that's something that's really a well-oiled uh, machine at this point. Yes, absolutely. Uh, no complaints about the turnaround time of the QIE. In fact, they keep us on our toes. They push us uh, to do better, to be better, to be faster, to be the best we can be. And so um, no complaints there. They are truly uh, collaborative partners in our improvement effort. And so we are very uh, uh, thankful and grateful for the selection of Health Services Advisory Group as our QIE. You know, there, there could have been other companies, but I cannot imagine anyone else who could have, uh, have come in and understood the culture at Laguna and then worked with us to uh, address our unique culture and our situation uh, and to show then the progress and improvements that we've made so far. Thank you. Thank you, President Commissioner Bernal. Christian. Thank you, President Bernal. Uh, it's good to see you, Mr. Pickens. Uh, and I join the comments and questions uh, and the appreciation for your answers to these uh, questions that uh, President Bernal and other commissioners have uh, uh, given you today. I had a question about, uh, your, you mentioned the fact that every 90 days there's an evaluation of the resident's needs and level of care. Do does the staff communicate directly with the residents about the outcome of those 90-day assessments or regardless of, you know, if there's a change or the, the staff finds that everything is fine or is there communication regarding that process? So those, those assessments are done by what we call the RCT, the resident care team. So that is the team that actually takes care of, of the residents. And so part of the process is to, when needed, involve the resident in, in those assessments. Uh, it doesn't happen uh, all the time, but if there are particular residents who have certain needs uh, above and beyond, uh, they, they are uh, involved. Now, it's important to distinguish between the assessments versus the care plan of the resident. So every resident has an individualized care plan, and that every resident is involved if, to the extent that their 
their facilities allow them in terms of decision-making capacity and or the surrogate decision-maker. So that is where we make sure then that the resident input into uh, their care happens with their uh, care planning process. And so after this assessment happens, there's communication with them, Ms. Christian, everything seems to be uh, where it is, where it needs to be, or we're going, we're yes. talking about? So, yes, example. So, so for example, if a resident uh, has been at skilled nursing level of care for the last five or six years, and upon this next, the most recent 90-day survey have been deemed to no longer meet that level of care, uh, meaning that uh, they don't require that assistance with activities of daily living, then they are notified, based upon our assessment, there's been a change in your status. You have gone from skilled nursing level to non-skilled nursing level. And so the residents then and their decision makers, uh, either family or, or, or guardians, are then uh, made aware of uh, uh, in that process because particularly if they go from skilled nursing to non-skilled nursing, um, there's a, a process where Medicaid notifies them of a change in status. They get to actually then appeal that change in status to say, well, I don't agree with their assessment. I think they got it wrong. So there's this back and forth process that they are uh, then able to engage in. Thank you. And the only thing I else I have to say is that I'm really thankful for President Bernal's questions and for your answers to them at the top of the, uh, the question period. And the way that I receive it is that you and uh, your staff and your colleagues are doing everything you can to get to recertification without jeopardizing the, uh, the positive outcome that we all need. Thank you very much. And that is definitely the case. Recertification is our, is our mantra, and that's the path that we're pushing towards. Thank you for your work. You're welcome. Any other questions or comments? Commissioners? All right, seeing none, Mr. Pickens, thank you so much to you and your entire team for all of your very hard and necessary work in uh, getting us to recertification at Laguna Honda. And thank you, Commission, for all of your support also. Thank you. Great, thank you. All right, moving on to our next item. It's approval of the minutes of the Health Commission meeting of April 18th, 2023. Commissioners, you have the minutes before you. If there are no uh, amendments, do we have a motion to uh, approve? Motion, motion to approve. Second. Second. Any public comment? Hi, folks on the line. This is um, item three, the minutes. Please press star three if you've received, excuse me, accommodation and would like to make public comment. I see one hand. Um, Seuss, please um, unmute the caller five. Thank you, Mr. Morowitz and Commission. This is H.H. Patrick. Um, again, these minutes. Um, still don't document my concern, although my 150-word public comment was included in the minutes. There's no clarification I can see in the minutes about my concern that Dr. Colfax and Mr. Pickens um, had asserted there had been 124 deficiencies in the December 90-day monitoring survey, but the QIEs um, root cause analysis report for that December um, monitoring survey had only listed 76 deficiencies again and 
unexplained variance of 48. I would so appreciate a, an explanation of those additional 48 deficiencies. And while I hesitate to do this, I'm prepared to submit a public records request to find out why the RCA report says one thing, and Dr. Colfax and Mr. Pickens have testified to this commission something else. Thank you. That's the only caller for that item. All right, can we, uh, we uh, have a motion and a second, done with public comment. Commissioners, any comments or questions? If not, we'll go, uh, all those in favor say aye. 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 Opposed? Aye. Minutes are approved. All right, our next item is general public comment. Secretary Morowitz, do we have general public comment? And please oh. offer any instructions that you may need to be offered. Sure. At this time, members of the public may address the commission on items of interest to the public that are within the subject matter jurisdiction of the commission but are not on this meeting agenda. So, for example, Laguna Honda, there was just a Laguna Honda update. This would not be the time to talk about Laguna Honda because the item just passed. Each member of the public may address the commission for up to three minutes. The Brown Act forbids the commission from taking action or discussing any item not appearing on the posted agenda, those raised, uh, including those raised during public comment. Uh, everything else I re I've already read as part of the, um, the earlier public comment statement. So folks, um, if you'd like to make general public comment and you've received an accommodation, please press star three. I see one hand. Seuss, please um, unmute caller five. Hi again, it's Patrick H.H. Mr. Morowitz, my comments here um, involve a resolution passed by the Board of Supervisors. So please don't cut me off. I will, this is very short. You can bear with me. I recently published an open letter to Governor Newsom on the medium.com website that I asked Mr. Pickens to, dis I mean, Mr. Morowitz to distribute to you. Um, noting that on July 26, 2022, the San Francisco Board of Supervisors had passed resolution number 365-22 addressed to Governor Newsom, Dr. Tomas Aragon, Director of the CDPH and our State Public Health Officer, and to Dr. Mark Galley, Director of um, uh, uh, the Health and Human Services Agency in California asking uh, the Board of Supervisors had asked for a permanent pause on discharges from Laguna Honda during the pendency of Laguna Honda's application to become recertified. My open letter asked Newsom again, to work with Dr. Aragon and Dr. Dr. Galley to collectively use their authorities to intervene in the mandatory discharge of the Laguna Honda's residents during the pendency of the recertification process. The board's resolution was passed unanimously by our 11 supervisors Excuse me, I'm having difficulty speaking today again because of the removal of my partoid um, salivary gland, so excuse me. Um, the resolution was 
passed unanimously by our 11 supervisors, but was inexplicably returned unsigned by Mayor London Braid. It was submitted to the governor and Drs. Aragon and Galley, nonetheless. I still urge this commission to, despite Commissioner Bernal's distinct line of questioning about various processes and Mr. Pickens' uh, citation of various uh, uh, federal code of regulations, I still request that this commission work. Uh, that is the only, let me just make sure that we're clear. Anyone else who would like to make a remote public comment? Press star three. All right, no more hands. All right, then we will move on to our next item, which is the director's report. Uh, welcome, uh, Dr. Grant Colfax, Director of Health. Thank you. Colfax. Thank you, President Bernal, and uh, good afternoon, Health Commissioners. I will be brief in summarizing the director's report since I know there are a number of other items on our agenda and happy to answer any questions or delve into details as the commission so request. I did want to highlight that uh, we hosted the CDC director um, on her visit uh, to San Francisco last week. Uh, Dr. Uh, Rochelle Walensky, the director of the CDC, um, took a tour of our Maria X. Martinez Health Resource Center. As you know, it's our newly constructed urgent care and transitional primary care clinic in the South of Market neighborhood. We were also joined by the California State Health Officer and DPH alum, Dr. Tomas Aragon. At a round table with DPH leadership, we had the opportunity to highlight the success of our COVID-19 response and our efforts to prevent and treat HIV and MPOX. We discussed our promotion of the uptake of DOXYPEP to reduce the transmission of STIs and provided um, an update on our efforts to, pre to work in overdose prevention and in supporting uh, people in street care. It was an honor to share our experiences with Dr. Walensky, who was impressed and supportive of our work and promised uh, to, to return. She was very impressed as a clinician herself. She was very impressed by the Maria X uh, clinic and, um, and was really interactive with the staff um, and, and, and um, people were really excited to, to meet with, with the director. And other items um, on, on, the, on the director's report, I encourage you to read about uh, the DPH Community Health program that fosters youth-led film, uh, youth film projects on sexual health and well-being. Um, our DPH, the next item is our DPH Center for Learning and Innovation uh, was awarded a five-year grant to bolster workforce diversity, which is really exciting. Um, and just to also point out that the environmental health team is supporting changes to the regulations of hazardous waste storage. There's details there as well. And I did want to um, just acknowledge a, a piece of uh, the work in DPH that's done every day that is so important um, to the health and well-being of residents, but is also overlooked. Um, an example of that is National Linen Week. Um, and national uh, linen is an important but unsung item that is critical for patient safety and prevention of infections. And we know this should be true at Zuckerberg San Francisco Hospital, as well as at Laguna Honda Hospital. Um, and just to give you some examples, at Zuckerberg, the hospital receives 2.4 million pounds of clean linens and generates 
an equivalent, 2.4 million pounds of, of soil linen. So there's just tremendous amount of work in cleaning and making sure that we're compliant with rules and regulations 365 days a year. And I just want to take a moment to recognize the great uh, work of the, of, the, of the team in this and the names of the team uh, leader and, and the team members are in the director's report. Finally, with, re with regard to our COVID-19 update, our seven-day rolling average of new COVID cases per day is 44, um, and 56 people were hospitalized, including nine in the intensive care unit as of April 26. 86% of all San Francisco residents have been vaccinated, and 65% have received a booster dose. 40% of residents have received a bivalent booster, and I believe we're at 65% of people, um, 65 and over, have now received a bivalent booster, which is much, much higher um, than uh, national averages and the state average. And uh, you will see there's uh, a link also to DPH, uh, news clips relevant to DPH in your report, and happy to take any questions. Thank you. Thank you, Director Colfax. Do we have public comment? Hi, uh, Sus, please um, unmute caller five. Thank you again, Mr. Morwick. Um, it was disappointing that there was no comment by either Dr. Colfax or Mr. Thickens about the nationwide search for a licensed nursing home administrator for Laguna Honda. The last we heard from Mr. Thickens. Oh, I'm sorry, this item is related to a previous item on the, on the agenda. Please no, the it's, a, it's related to Dr. Colfax yes. not mentioning that. Thank you. Uh, there's another hand. Please um, unmute this other caller, Sus. Thanks. Oh, the Hi, please let us know that you're there. Yeah, can you hear me? And please begin. Okay, my name is Art Bursicom with the SF Gray Panthers. And I know Dr. Colfax probably can't answer any questions. I just, I just wanted to let you know that I, I, you know, there are a lot of cases of COVID that I have personally seen and experienced in the last month. And I find it remarkable that me as one person in San Francisco would know so many people who got COVID just in the last month. And I'm wondering if there's uh, tracking of such cases, like if I'm a Kaiser patient or whether you know I'm a Sutter patient, do uh, institutions who uh, treat people for COVID, do they report statistics to the uh, San Francisco Health Department, or is it just hospitalizations and deaths that get reported? I know you can't answer, but I, I would love to find out and maybe, um, you know, I could get an answer some other way. But um, I just wanted to make, since we had this opportunity to make a comment, I want to find out. And uh, that's my comment. Thank you. Thank you. That's the only public comment. All right, thank you, caller, for your comment. Commissioners, comments or questions for Director Colfax and the Director's Report? All right, don't see any. Thank you, Director Colfax, and it's no surprise. Um, we're, we're pleased, but no surprise to know that uh, Dr. Walensky was impressed by uh, the work that's being done by the department in terms of infectious disease, COVID, of course, SDI, uh, prevention, MPOX, et cetera. So thank you, thank you for uh, sharing that with us. All right, our next item is the city option update. This is a discussion item. Uh, for this item, we have Stella, I'm sorry, is it Ka Chow? Chow, thank yes. you. Thank you, Ms. Chow. Um, Director of Managed Care, welcome, Ms. Chow. Thank you. 
Good afternoon. Um, you already know my name. I'm here joined by um, my colleague from San Francisco Health Plan, um, Sumi Susa, who is on the line, um, who is also our uh, third party administrator of the San Francisco City Option Program. We are here today to provide you an update um, on the program. Next slide, please. So here's the agenda. So I'm not going to read item by item. So let's move to our goals on the next slides. So we have two goals today. One is to give the commissioners an update on the um, San Francisco City Option Program in shipment policies that you approved in January 2022. Secondly, we would like to provide the commissioners a summary of the program fund since it's it's the its inception 15 years ago. So, um, next slide, please. So, to level set, um, I would like to go over briefly how the program works. So, first, um, under the healthcare security ordinance, employers would contribute um, money on their employees' behalf at least on a quarterly basis by submitting a roster and send the fund to the program. And then, um, and they also, the employers, they will also uh, notify their, their employees that um, now, you know, I've put money into your uh, city options account. At, at that point, uh, the money will go into a fund pool. Um, we're referring to the pool, fund pool, or an assigned fund pool of the program. Um, the program would then notify the uh, notifies the employees, uh, telling them that they have fun in the program and the way they can enroll into an SFMRA program, San Francisco Medical Reimbursement Account, where they could uh, use the fund to um, to to get reimbursed for the medical expenses, such as uh, over-the-counter medicine, prescription uh, drugs for themselves and their families. And then lastly, once this um, SFMRA account is set up, um, by the, once the employees contact us, uh, we set up the SFMRA accounts, any future contribution will go directly um, into the SFMRA account. So it's, it's going to, it, it bypasses the fund pool. And then once the account is set up, then um, the, the enrolled um, employees can file claims and get reimbursed. Next slide, please. So going back to the uh, insurance policy that you have approved in January 2022, the city actually has that process uh, uh, that is being managed by the Office of the Treasurer and Tax, tax and Treasurer, <laughs> TTX, sorry, <laughs> I'm terrible with these acronyms. Um, so it's, it is followed, it's governed by a state law. And I, I am not going to read word by words on the slide because we are pulling out the relevant, part, the relevant parts of the state law. But the key takeaway here is uh, two. One is in order to start the enshipment process, the funds needs to be in the custody of the city agency or in the local agency. Second piece is, is uh, once that three years period as required by law has passed, 
um, we will, the city will need to do some publication um, according to the law in order to insure the money. So this is the to take away from this slide. Next, please. So why do we have, why do we need this policy just to refresh our memory? Um, the program was established in 2008 and it did not really take off in terms of employer con uh, participation and contribution uh, um, after 2014. So just want to um, show you the numbers. In 2014, uh, we have received, uh, can you press the slide please? <laughs> yes, in 2014 we, we have, the program has uh, received, the program received $60 million in total. The following year, the, the program grew by 56%. And then, you know, moving forward, right? If you look at five years later, the program actually almost um, double the growth. So this is um, why, you know, over time, we have um, unspent dollars uh, have, have accumulated in the program. As of today, we have about 428,000 um, employees in the SF City Options Program. And 100 of those have less than $1 uh, total balance. So a total is about $60,000, uh, which is about 23% of the total uh, employees. And another 35%, which is the 150,000 employees who have money but have not enrolled in SFMRA. So um, means that the money is really stuck in the um, unassigned fund pool. Next slide, please. So since the approval of this uh, policy, we've been working diligently with different departments in the city, including city attorney's office, um, the office of the treasurer and tax collector, um, and then uh, the controller's office, also getting guidance from the mayor's office. Um, so we've broken down our project, this project implementation of this policy into two, uh, four phases. Um, as I highlighted earlier, uh, when we were looking at the state uh, regulation, um, one of the, the key thing is in order to initiate the money, the money has to be in the possession of the local uh, agency. So as part of the phase one, we just, um, we work with the controller's office and TTX um, establish a, a bank account under the city treasury in October and move the, the entire program fund over. Um, that has been completed. And then phase two, uh, we just completed, um, is to notify um, all the employers and employees that we are kicking off this policy. And before we actually start counting the three years period, we, we, we try to outreach to everyone. So we've outreached to about over 300,000 employees and 4,000 employers. Um, we started in, in early January and we run that in shipment, you know, outreach for six weeks. So the, the outcome was, I mean, the outcome really exceeded our expectation. Um, we were able to move um, 144 million uh, from the, in the unassigned fund pool to the SFMRA account where the employees actually can tap into and get reimbursement. 
Um, so that's the piece. Um, and then also phase three, that's where we are at now. Um, before, oh, this three years period, we kick off this um, policy as of March 1st this year. And that would give us three years, right, before we, we insert any money. So which means that including the notification process as mandated by the state law, the earliest, the earliest we can insert the money is mid-April 2026. So um, to prepare for that before 2026, um, we have to complete the planning, right? There's a list of projects that we need to complete. Um, here's a few examples. For example, we need to establish a online lookup tool so then the public can actually look up, um, look, look up online to see if they have any fund left. We will also get, need to get a set of these um, records. We will haven't figured out how to do it in, a, in, a, in case someone do not access online, right? Do not have a computer. They can either go to the library or check whether they have fund left. That's one of them. Another one is we have to work with a, um, our, our um, vendor, um, wage work who manage our MIA accounts to set up process and procedures for closing accounts. And the last example is, uh, what else we did? <laughs> um, yes, we need to develop an outreach program, you know, before 2026. Um, of course, we will continue our outreach during these three years, but as we get closer, we need to really, you know, let them know that this is the last chance, you know, um, for you to activate your account, and, and if not, your money will be injected and, and closed, your account will be closed. And lastly, to prepare for the uh, phase four, uh, we will need to refine our existing reports to make sure that uh, we can continue, we can start to implement, uh, monitor and evaluate the implementation and effectiveness of different outreach efforts. Next slide, please. Here is just a visual of phase two. Uh, this is like a, um, a recap of the instrument outreach impact. Um, as you can see, right, we move 9% of the fund uh, we increased the 9% of the fund in SFMRA, which equals to $144 million. So uh, really to our pleasant surprise. Next, please. Next slide, yeah. Next, um, we would like to give you a very, very high level summary of, of the program fund. So again, the program has been established since 20, um, since 2008. Um, the employers have contributed on behalf of their employees $1.66 billion into the program. And 36 of that has been paid out as claims, um, claims reimbursement to employees. And then 27% actually today is sitting in the active MIA accounts that available to pay for future claims. And then 9% has been paid to Healthy San Francisco program for those who are eligible for the program as SPMM. And lastly, this is the, the really the, the, 
the backbone we are trying to, to uh, work on is the 28% of that total amount is still sitting in the unassigned fund pool and waiting for the employees to take action, engage with us and open their SFMI accounts. So uh, to sum this up, um, before we go to the question, next slide please. So for those, um, those are new and reactivated employees. Um, we will continue our outreach you know, efforts and measure the effectiveness of those um, and, and encourage them to use the program benefits. Uh, for those that still have um, inactive funds, uh, in, still have fund appeared in the unassigned fund pool or inactive funds in the SFMIA funds, um, we will just need to leverage our outreach um, through this, for this enshipment in, in, uh, policy and to further engage them. The program's goal is to make healthcare more affordable for our residents and workers. And in sheeting money or the fund, it's really the last resort the city will take to address the accumulated funds in the program. So with that, I would like to invite Sumi Susa to join me and uh, we'll try to answer questions you have. If not, uh, we will look back. Thank you, Ms. Chow. Uh, Secretary Moritz, do you have any public comment on this item? I don't see any, but I'll, let me announce it again. So folks, we're on item six. If you have public comment related to the city option update and you've received an accommodation, press star three, see no hands. And so if you're just a remote public comment, person, please raise your hand if you'd like to, uh, press star three. <clears throat> no hands. Commissioners, comments or questions? Commissioner Christian. Thank you, President Bernal. Thank you, Ms. Chow, for this presentation. I learned something very new today. Oh, thank you. Um, I'm a city employee, and I didn't know about the city option. <laughs> and uh, it's a great option. And it uh, sounds very much like the health savings account that I think is a federal uh, thing. and. Uh, in using that, the health savings account, you will lose your money if you don't actually use it uh, over a period of time. Once under the city option, once an employee gets their funds into the uh, MFA, uh, is it possible that if they let it accrue and save it for when they need it, uh, that they will risk losing it? Thank you for the question. That policy, uh, what you described, you know, they can accumulate the fund in their account. That was the case before March 1st. <laughs> so, you know, the program established, has been established for 15 years. We, we have not had any policy really permanently uh, deactivate the money and to initiate the money. Um, a few years ago, we implemented uh, a policy called the activated fund, but really, whenever they reach out to us, we, we activate their account. So the money is actually, because we don't want to pay this monthly fee to wage work to manage their MIA accounts, right? So that was the purpose. But now, starting March 1st, the clock, the three-year clock, it, it's ticking now. So every, the money, it, every, every dollar has a, has a time stamp on it. So back to your question, if, if an employees do not use that money and do not call us um, at all, uh, you know, in, in April 2026, 
that's the earliest time we will, they will permanently lose the money, and the money will be initiated to the city's general fund for reappropriation. And if they do call you, is there something different that would happen? If they call us, well, we activate their account, right? And they will submit claims. So just give you, and people do respond. I don't know why the outreach efforts were not as effective as the current one. Because in the, um, during the six weeks of outreach, we've paid out $51 million claims. So now people know that they can actually lose the money, use or lose it. So they are just start to really get into it. Of course, there will always be unused funds, right? Like us, you know, $2, I mean, I don't even bother to use that $2 if, if or $10 left in the account, for example. Thank you. Yes. Also, um, I do just want to add, and Stella, correct me if I'm wrong, um, that so long as the account is active, you don't have to use the full amount by the end of the three years. So long as the account is active and there's at least one claim during that three-month, three-year period, you can keep the rest. It's what we're really looking for is those really dormant, um, unclaimed dollars where we actually, you know, at, at some point, um, our goal is absolutely to make sure that we want to maximize the dollars and make them as flexible as possible, which is why they are rolling over. But what we're also just, you know, at some point as a practical matter, we know like anything, some dollars um, will go unclaimed, similar to other city funds that are being managed. And so we do have to have this achievement process just to go through the legal process um, to do that sort of back end cleanup. But again, our goal um, is, and so again, it's they do not have to use all of it within three years. Um, they can, they just, they just have to be active, um, and we just need to know that they are out there. Well, thank you for that. That's a great policy, a generous policy, but also I think a wise one because you know we, I think uh, people who, just speaking for myself, you know, contribute to something like that, you know, a fund like this. You're looking for, I'm looking for uh, having funds available for an emergency, really, in, in many ways, and. Your policy allows for that in a way that the federal policy doesn't. So I uh, commend you on that policy and thank you for the presentation. Vice President Green. Yes, thank you for all the clarifications. One question I had is, as you look at this money that's in the pool right now, do you have any sense for how much is, I mean, you've had a significant increase in contributions in the last five years. I, I don't know if you have even, you know, whether it's particularly escalated, let's say in the last two. But do you have any sense for how much money in the pool is from people that are still employed, still active, and just didn't understand or haven't gotten around to it? And how much is from people that it ultimately will be money that is sheets to the general fund because um, they're retired or they, do, it, they you can't reach them. In other words, it's interesting to know the amount in the pool, but it's hard to understand what the ultimate distribution will be unless we have a better sense for how much is new money and people are just newly enrolled and haven't figured it out versus money that really will never be claimed. Um, we do our outreach, right? So we measure our responses, whether they understand uh, they have money in the pool. Um, I think we need to conduct some kind of focus group to understand that further. But I think your question is asking if we take a snapshot today, right? Let's say today is mid-April 2026. How much money uh, we will have to in sheet? So as of today, it's $150 million. 
And, and in January last year, when we come to the um, Health Commission, the projection was like $104 million, I believe. And, and we did respond to that question also via email to you, but it was the last minute. <laughs> so I, I thank you for your question. Thank you. And Sumi has a, she raised her hand. Is it okay if she responds? Absolutely, yes. please. Sure, Sumi, no, please. you asked a really good question, Commissioner Green, hopefully you can hear me. Um, so uh, we don't have a lot of information about the specific employees themselves because unfortunately the employers don't, they aren't required and they don't provide us that type of information. The only thing that we actually have about them is some small amount of demographic data, just where they live, where they're, you know, and, and what the date of their fund was. We did sort of provide you some information. The biggest uh, decider or the biggest insight that we have is how old the money is. And most of that money in the pool, and it makes sense, is actually relatively new money. So there's about 467 million in the pool and all but 150 million of it is less than three years. And so think about, when you think about just the nature of accounts, you have some accounts that are really, really small. Uh, you know, they might have $2 or $3, so nobody's gonna use them until more con more contributions actually go in there. There are some that are quite large as well. Um, so our best guesstimate is actually that we would, you know, it's, it's we're gonna be doing a lot more outreach. And the reason why you got a big response over the last four months is because we actually spent a lot of time outreaching to everyone, telling them about this new policy and that accounts would permanently close. That has never happened before. The medical reimbursement accounts were, were always different from flexible spending accounts. They were never a use it or lose it. So now that folks have been informed, we now ha will have a policy of where we're gonna continually remind them and their employer about this new policy. So that is really driving some of this changes in behavior. It also is because we're, we, we have to do some projects that will make the experience easier so debit cards will be in the future, things that make it just a little bit of a lower barrier um, for some of the employees. So, I, you know, in terms of answering your question about like, what, what do we know? It's, you know, it's not that they have, we, we don't know that they've changed job and all of these, this kind of churning that happens in the labor market interferes quite frankly with people using their accounts. They forget about them. They think I miss, you know, I, I, I finished my job, I can't use it. And so it's a constant process of trying to educate them that they can use it. And now that there's the new policy of you must use it um, uh, at least once, make a claim or have a deposit within this three-year period, or it will be escheated. So hopefully that's helpful in terms of giving you a little bit more data about this, this unused dollars uh, that are in the pool. Thank you for that great explanation. And also it's quite commendable that you really exceeded your goals in reaching people. It's very heartening to know the outreach has been so successful and will be even more so as you develop more uh, protocols to approach employees. Thank you. Commissioners, other questions or comments? All right, seeing none, thank you very much for this update. And lastly, I would like to um, Thank you, San Francisco Health Plan's entire team, because the workload has has turned tenfold during the six weeks and beyond. So their team is just stuck with it and, and get through it. So I I thank you so much, Sumi and team. So thanks. Thanks. We share your gratitude. 
All right, moving on to the next item on the agenda. It's an action item. It's uh, the MOU between the DPH and the San Francisco Public Health Foundation. We have DPH control, controller Drew Merle here. Thank you, President Bernal. Good afternoon, commissioners. Uh, happy to bring this memorandum of understanding between the San Francisco Department of Public Health and the San Francisco Public Health Foundation. Um, it's in response to controllers, uh, several recommendations from their assessment of um, public integrity in 2020, and uh, in particular, a requirement that the friends of organizations so-called comply with the San Francisco Sunshine Ordinance. Um, and that particularly in response to one of the questions from Commissioner Chow, thank you for the review, is why there is sort of exhibit B. It's a template version for any donations to go and be reported back so that the Public Health Foundation can gather that information. Um, other instances or stipulations in the MOU in response to controller's findings include um, city law acceptance of gifts uh, follow the San Francisco Administrative Code uh, for acceptance and expense. Um, a clause granting controller audit authority to access organization records. Uh, requirement to report donations, um, including grants on the organization's website. And clearly identified defined roles regarding expenditures, including prohibitions against spending uh, directed by the control recipient. Um, so thank you, for, and I, I received a couple questions. I'm happy to talk through them. Um, after me, immediately, will be uh, Jennifer Boffey, the CFO for Zuckerberg San Francisco General Hospital Foundation with a similar MOU. There's a couple of distinctions between the two MOUs. One, um, their MOU does allow for uh, donations in support of employee recognition events, not open to the public. That's a distinction embedded because the Public Health Foundation actually holds several contracts with DPH. As such, they're an interested party and that involves the city's new behesting rules. So that's why Public Health Foundation does not have an exception to allow for employee recognition events. Um, second, there's a fee schedule. It's a little bit different for the Public Health Foundation that has a, in both cases, they adhere to industry standard for administrative fees. The Public Health Foundation adheres to a sliding scale. As the donations get bigger, the percentage for admin gets lower. And that's just because they felt more comfortable and didn't need as much flexibility to ramp up fundraising efforts in particular. But Jennifer will speak more to that. And then lastly, I apologize. I think that was the last thing. Um, but happy to take any other questions. Thank you, Mr. Merle. Before we go into public comment or commissioner comments or questions, do we have a motion to approve the MOU? I so move to approve the MOU. Is there a second? Second. All right. Any public comment on this item, Secretary Morris? I don't see any hands, but I should remind folks we're on item seven. Please press star three if you'd like to make public comment. No hands, commissioners. Oh, commissioners, any questions or comments? I, I just wanted a follow-up. Uh, uh, the uh, San Francisco General Foundation puts out these letters that ask for donations into their fund. So your template looks very daunting. You know, normally you would just put in $100 and then you sign your name. Are they going to have to then check off boxes as they then make their donation? I think the template is one 
way to fulfill the requirements of the Sunshine Ordinance. So the Sunshine Ordinance, and which is included in this MOU acceptance by the Friends of Organization, requires that any entity, such as PHF, or in the case of San Francisco General Hospital Foundation, that is accepting funding on the purpose for the purpose of carrying out or assisting any city function, um, disclose the source of the funds on the uh, as a public record made available on the website. So, in order to do that, this Exhibit B is the vehicle. Now, I think there's still discussion about what exactly, what forum they would attach to do those sorts of fundraising letters. The only requirement in the MOU is that, in the case of restricted funds. Exhibit B gets attached. Um, but outside of that, I think the exact forum, oh. format is still being decided upon. Okay, now, thank you. Any other comments or questions, commissioners? Sure, sure. Seeing none, all those in favor? In favor. Aye. Aye. Opposed? All right, MOU's approved. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Merle. And our next similar but different item is item eight, the MOU between the DPH and the SFGH. Foundation. We have a ZSFG CFO, Jennifer Boffy here. Thank you, President Bernal, and good afternoon, commissioners. Um, I'm here to talk to you about the MOU between the San Francisco General Hospital and the, the um, San Francisco General Hospital Foundation. As noted by my colleague previously, Drew, this is to adhere to administrative code, um, as well as compliance and city ethics recommendations. Um, there are uh, a few differences in um, our MOU, as Drew noted, and if you have further clarification, I will go ahead and answer for that answer to that for you today. Um, in addition, just some questions, Commissioner Chow. Thank you to make sure um, all funds from this foundation are subject to admin code, so that would include our special programs like Hearts Grants or Innovation and Equity Grants. Um, the uh, annual report that's made available to the Health Commission uh, upon request of the director is really to enhance and improve compliance and transparency between the foundation and the hospital as well as public and sunshine ordinance. And then exhi exhibit B, as you talked about, is really about um, donor disclosure to disclose any interest with the city that there where there might be um, a conflict. Um, also noted um, that's different is that we have the ability to use funds for staff uh, engagement or celebration events. That is because um, the Ethics Commission for San Francisco has reviewed our relationship with the foundation um, in lieu of behest and determined <coughs> that it is not a behested relationship in the manner in which we operate today. Um, just also want to very much thank the city attorney who has reviewed our MOU as well and it is in um, adherence with other friends of organization MOUs and also to thank the San Francisco General Hospital um, Foundation who's been a great partner in terms of supporting the hospital and this will just allow that to continue so that we can support our patients and the community at large. All right. Do we have a motion to approve? I so move to approve. Second. All right. Any public comment? I don't see any hands. Folks, we're on item eight. Press star three if you'd like to make comment. No hands. No, no public comment. Uh, and, and just to clarify, this is the MOU with the SFGH Foundation. Correct. And the San Francisco Apologies. General Hospital. I, I misstated yeah. earlier. Um, the two names are very similar. Yes. Yes. Uh, all right. Uh, any comments or questions from commissioners? Uh, I was just wondering. Uh, 
in 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 the annual report, and I'd ask the director, uh, would the director be amenable for that to appear before the commission, just like we get other uh, gift reports? I'm sorry, Commissioner. Can you, I couldn't quite hear that. Could you repeat it? Sure. Uh, because it says that the annual report of the foundation is uh, at the uh, uh, actually at the call of the director that would then go to the commission. The commission does not have a right to ask it in this MOU. The director does. I'm just asking if the director then would see that a annual report uh, before the commission would be actually quite useful. Okay. Yes. Absolutely. <coughs> Thanks. Okay. Thank you. Any other questions or comments? If not, all those in favor? Aye. Aye. Opposed? Thank you. MOU is approved. Thank you. All right. Our next item is um, item number nine for discussion of the Finance and Planning Committee update. Uh, I will hand it over to Chair Commissioner Cecilia Chung. Um, good afternoon, Commissioners. The, um, the Finance and Planning Committee met before this commission um, meeting um, earlier this afternoon, and we have um, recommend adding six items to the consent calendar, which include a May 2023 contract report and um, five new contracts. And in, in addition to adding those five new contracts, we um, were hoping that um, we can schedule a presentation somewhere down the line for um, the uh, the voucher for veggie um, program um, um, because we've I don't think we have ever had that being presented at the um, community and population health committee and so um, you know that would be um, some data that we would be very interested in hearing about and to see the outcomes of that program. Um, and in addition, we also have a preview and discussion of the draft um, charity care report, and it will be presented to the full commission um, a month from now. All right. Secretary Moritz, any public comment on this item? Uh, I see no hands, but folks, we are on item nine, the Finance and Planning Committee. No, uh, there's no public comment. If I may um, add to Commissioner Chung's comments with your, um, hopefully respectfully, um, the contracts report, um, the Horizons contract was taken off um, because for administrative reasons. So when you all consider a vote, know that that report will not include that item. All right. Commissioners, any comments or questions for the chair? Now we can move into our next item, which is the consent calendar and an extra related item. Back to you, Chair Commissioner Chung. Um, I just wanted to point out that there's actually an additional item in the consent calendar, which is like from the recommendations of the CSFG JCC. So how do we want to approach that one? So, um, I can just note, um, Commissioner Green can jump in, but uh, that item was reviewed and recommended for approval by the uh, ZSFG JCC at its meeting last week. And it's the um, re revised radiology privileges list. So, um, yeah, so I'd like to like make a formal motion to adopt the consent calendar. Do you have a second? Second. Any public comment? Uh, I think we uh, we already asked 
do we already ask for public comment? No, I'm sorry. Um, folks on the line, um, if you'd like to make public comment on item 10, consent calendar, please let us know by pressing star three. No hands. All right, Com commissioners, any comments or questions? If not, we'll go directly to a vote. All those in favor, say aye. 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 Opposed? All right, the consent calendar passes. Thank you, Commissioner Chung. And uh, Commissioner Bernal, on the next item, it's Commissioner Green who will be giving the ZSFG JCC update because Commissioner Chow was um, absent at that meeting. All right, great. Thank you. Vice President Green, take it away. Yes. The Joint Conference Committee and other uh, of ZSFG JCC meeting. Absolutely. So at the ZFG, uh, at the Zuckerberg San Francisco General JCC, we reviewed the regulatory affairs, hiring and vacancy, CEO, and medical staff report. Highlights included the successful opiate outpatient treatment program survey, the multiple contributions ZSFG is making to improve black birthing people's health, the introduction of new chief administrative officer Angelica Jernigan, and recognition of several staff, including social workers and chief experience officer Ayanna Johnson. We were pleased to hear that ambulance diversions and left without being seen or treated rates continue to drop and thanks to the hard and really creative work of the HR team, <clears throat> nurse RN vacancies rates drops by 10%. Oh, wow. Yeah, really impressive. We recommended policies approved earlier in this meeting and in closed session, we approved the credentialing report and the PIPS minutes. Thank you, Vice President Green. Any public comment on this item? I do not see any hands, folks. We are on item 11. Please press star three if you'd like to make a comment. No hands. All right, commissioners, any comments or questions? Particularly impressed by the drop in vacancies. So thank you to our uh, HR team and everyone involved and folks over at ZSFG for helping to make that happen. And thank you for sharing that, Commissioner Green, Vice President Green. All right, seeing no other questions or comments, our next item is uh, consideration of a closed session. Um, we I, will need uh, to... Uh, sir, I'm sorry, item 12 is other business, just to make sure that we're oh, covering sorry, other everything. other business. Anybody have other business? And uh, folks on the line, if you'd like to make comment on that, please press star three, item 12. No hands. All right. Seeing no other business, we will now move on to our closed session. And in order to enter closed session, we will need to have two separate votes because there are two items for discussion in that closed session. But first we must take public comment on closed session. Yes, we need a motion before public comment though, is that correct? Yes. Okay, uh, the first motion we will uh, entertain is whether to hold a closed session in relation to item 13D, which is Laguna Honda Hospital and Rehabilitation Center quality update regarding recent regulatory survey activity. Do we have a motion uh, to go into closed session on that item? I so move. Second. All right, public comment. All right, um, Sus, please unmute caller five, and I need to share my screen to share a slide. It's Patrick. I want to comment on the litigation settlement on uh, item 8E in closed session, not on the regulatory survey. We'll be coming to that motion in a moment. We can do public comment on that. Oh, I'm sorry. There's only one public comment in the entire closed session. Oh. Yes, um, I know it's confusing everyone. So um, please just, um, Mr. Manette Shaw, please just begin. Okay, would you put up that chart I emailed you and asked you to display, Mark? As yes, enter, it's, it, it's up. As you enter this closed session, um, you'll note on this chart 
that I've received word on the street that there's public guardian, public conservator lawsuit involves upward of a $3 million settlement related to the patient sexual abuse scandal in the summer of 2019 during Mike Carosi's reign as Laguna Honda CEO. Even before this settlement, the top part of the chart shows you that between CMS and CDPH fines and penalties in the first patient lawsuit by Omar Abdullah, a public conservator patient at Laguna Honda, had cost upward, had, had cost a combined cost of $1.89 million. With this proposed settlement of $3 million, we're up to $4.8 million in costs with the Johnson et al. class action lawsuit alleging a, quote, culture of elder abuse remaining active and outstanding. Karosi had admitted she neglected developing a culture of patient safety. Given the costs involved in the settlement in the sex abuse scandal, DPH should terminate Karosi. The San Francisco Chronicle's Nanette Azimov had claimed in a recent article that Laguna Honda's decertification, quote unquote, original sin was to fentanyl near fatal overdoses. That's wrong. In reality, the original sin was the sexual abuse scandal under Hiroshi's culture of violence, her lack of a culture of patient safety, and the culture of elder abuse uh, mismanagement that the public guardian and public conservator are quite concerned about elder abuse at Laguna Honda. You must terminate Hiroshi before these costs reach $10 million or more. You're not far away from a $10 million problem caused by Hiroshi. And by the way, that scandal led to decertification, which has cost Laguna Honda at least $27 million in consultant contracts and the loss of over $25 million in Medicare revenue. When are you going to terminate that woman? Thank you. Okay, and there's one more caller. Um, Sis, please unmute 12. Um, hi, it's Dr. Palmer, WW. I, um, um, the agenda item 13E uh, in closed session um, concerns a lawsuit um, about um, that alleges that um, managing agents and employees acted, acted negligently by failing to ensure that Laguna Honda Hospital maintain an adequate number of staff members or to ensure that the staff were adequately trained to supervise, maintain, and protect the plaintiffs, Laguna Honda patients, and other Laguna Honda hospital patients. There was a failure of adequate supervision, a failure to monitor shortcomings and care, and the negligence and failure to monitor staff members resulted in poor outcomes, as well as multiple deficiencies and citations. Um, this was the original sin, and um, I, I sincerely hope 
that the agonizing process uh, and expensive process that Laguna Honda and SFCPH and all of the staff and all of the patients are going through now uh, will make absolutely certain this will never ever happen again. You can't, uh, uh, having management that knows how to run a nursing home uh, is indispensable and you cannot treat Laguna Honda as a satellite of San Francisco General. It is a public nursing home for the people of San Francisco and it needs to remain available to them. And we, I really, and I'm sure the people of San Francisco pray that this um, exercise in agony will turn out okay and will never ever happen again. Thank you. Please mute. Thank you, that's the only public comment. All right, the motion that we have at hand is the closed session in relation to item 13D. Uh, commissioners, any comments or questions? Seeing none, all those in favor? Aye. Aye. Opposed? All right, now we'll move on to the second vote. And this vote is whether to hold a closed session in relation to item 13E, which is the pending litigation, um, and to assert attorney-client privilege in relation to that closed session discussion. Do we have a motion uh, to hold a closed session under those terms? So moved. Second. Second. All right. Can we go straight to a vote then, Secretary Morowitz? Yes, sir. All right, all those in favor? Aye. Aye. Opposed? Okay, we are now in closed session on both of those items and under the terms in the motions. Great, give me 30 seconds to move us over. Folks on the line. SFGOAT-TV, San Francisco Government Television.
SFGovTV, San Francisco Government Television.
SFGovTV, San Francisco Government Television.
SF.GOV.TV San Francisco Government Television TV San Francisco Government Television
Okay, so uh, SFGovTV, can you raise your hand or let us know when you're ready? Okay, they are ready. So, commissioners, please consider a motion to disclose or not disclose. Discussion. Do you have a motion to disclose or not disclose the contents of the closed session? I move not to disclose. Second. All right. Uh, all those in favor? Aye. Aye. Opposed? All right. Motion passes. Now we will go on to a motion to, to adjourn. Motion to adjourn. Second. All those in favor? Aye. Aye. Opposed? We are adjourned. Thank Thanks you, everybody. Everyone. Thank you, Mark. Thank you. Thank you. Oh.